Hello, and welcome to Someday We'll All Be Dead, a podcast where we talk about all the things with the social work perspective. I'm your host, Hallie Harris, and I'm a hospice social worker. Today, I have with me a fellow hospice social worker, and we're going to talk about the documentary, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez, that's on Netflix. I'm just warning you now that this particular subject and this documentary are very hard to watch, and I left out a lot of the details that were extremely disturbing. So if you do want to go back and watch the documentary before we talk about it, just know that that is what's going on. But I do think that it's an important topic to discuss. And so here we go. So welcome, Caitlin. Welcome, Hallie. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Caitlin. Um, I am a social worker for hospice. Uh huh. And I also have a private practice. Excellent. Well, we are very thankful that you're here today. We're going to be discussing a very hard subject today, which is child abuse and child death, and also how very scary it is to be a social worker when you might actually get prosecuted for something. Absolutely. It's very scary, and I thank you for having me on the show. Yes, thank you for being here. So what we're talking about for the listeners today is the Netflix series, limited series, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. And you watched all of these six episodes. I did. I did. And then you actually put me onto these. So I watched them. Very disturbing. Case about uh, a young eight-year-old boy. Um, and... What I'm going to try to do during the episode is not really go into a lot of details because it's pretty traumatizing to even watch. And um, so I'm going to kind of, I'll give a little bit of the synopsis and then I just made a bunch of notes and then we can kind of discuss that, throw out your thoughts. And then uh, I was hoping you might give some perspective on um, the times that without detail that you've had to be a part of a court proceeding. Of course, it wasn't about a child death, but how scary that is. And, you know, thinking about notes that you took five years ago or however long that, you know, having to remember all that. So, because that is certainly relevant to this case. Okay. So the synopsis is an eight-year-old boy dies um, after heroic measures of the emergency staff. And then as the investigation unfolds, it seems there are multiple people involved, multiple agencies involved, and they were all aware of the abuse going on, um, really the past eight months of his life. And then throughout the sixth part episode, it it goes into great detail, um, really in the, (laughs) I hope you can't hear the cat trying to get in, Um, in the view of the trial and as the trial proceeds, that's how you get all this information. So the story is not exactly linear, but it is as the investigation and trial goes on. That's how you get the info. So the first episode really was focusing on the mother's boyfriend who admits that he perpetrated the last beating which I got to say, I was kind of surprised at. Did you have thoughts on when you first heard that? I mean, I guess I should give a little bit more synopsis in this beginning. If people haven't watched it, there was really extensive abuse sure. for yeah, eight months. And then 
uh, this boyfriend, the mother and the boyfriend eventually go on trial, but the boyfriend, um, is up for first degree murder and they're trying to get him the death penalty. So, um, I was very surprised when they just out of the gate, even though the boyfriend never really talks ever, never makes a statement, anything, um, that I guess it's because they were trying to get him out of the death penalty. What, what do you think? Yeah, my impression was that, you know, the reason why he did not um, take a plea bargain and or um, basically admit guilt to any of those crimes is because they wanted to pursue a trial for it to hopefully get a lesser um, sentence um, than the death penalty or um, even lesser than that. So that's why they pursued the trial. Well, yeah, I, I assume they didn't even offer a plea because right out of the gate in the trial, he says, you know, yes, my client admits that he did, in fact, beat him, causing his death on this last day, but that it was a crime of passion per se, like he went into a blind rage and killed him and it wasn't this eight month long series of abuse. I mean, right. did they really think that he was going to get off on that? I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, I think the extensiveness of the abuse and for the amount of time that it occurred um, is what the trial was really all about, that it wasn't just a crime of passion. It was um, torture for the eight months that the child lived with the family. So um, I think they had a more significant um, argument for that reason. Yeah. <clears throat> I think the prosecutor did a really good job explaining throughout the trial and throughout the series why, you know, a couple times you'd hear something and you'd be like, oh, maybe, you know, maybe it really wasn't. And then he'd be like, this is against all evidence. That's absolutely ongoing torture. Not to mention, I mean, just even the autopsy with the variety of older and newer wounds would suggest sure. that. Yep. Um, so yeah, in, in the first trial, it put a light on the extensive list of the wounds with the coroner stating it took two whole days for the autopsy just to list them all. So that kind of gives you an idea of how extensive this poor child's body was damaged. Mm -hmm. It was very tragic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the mother was also charged, but they had a trial separated due to her intellectual disability. They didn't really get into that in the series. They very briefly touched on that. Did you have thoughts about that when you were watching the videos of her? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it was a tactic um, from her attorneys, um, really just to pursue avoiding the death penalty, um, which the result was that she did. She got life in prison. Um, you know, and I think they really focused more on the boyfriend and his abuse of the child versus the mom. Um, but obviously they worked in tandem um, to not meet this child's needs. So. <laughs> At the very least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> his teacher, I just felt, I mean, my heart just broke for his teacher. Because yeah. she had seen this abuse, had called into what is our DSHS, which is DCFS in California, and was involved and, and kept calling. You know, she called a couple yeah. times. Yeah, she did an excellent job of advocating for him. 
and just how helpless she must have felt, especially later on. I don't think I put a note in, um, but when the teacher was saying, you know, he reported that the social worker did come out and it made the abuse worse. And so you're stuck in this, do I call again because I need to call again, but it's, is it going to potentially make it worse for him? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure she's not the only one that's ever been in that situation. Sure. Sure. You know, and at the end of the video, they did give an opportunity for her to kind of give a statement at the trial. And she just spoke about how, you know, traumatic that experience was for her, knowing that he had passed. And it was kind of out of her control, despite her many efforts to intervene. Mm -hmm. So um, that's that vicarious trauma that we talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I did make a note in here, and it does go into it really throughout, but more into the last episode, that there were actually four social workers. Well, technically, there were two social workers and two two, two supervisors that right. were involved, and then they all got indicted. Right. So that's where it's the scary part of being a social worker and being involved in cases. I mean, I would guess that if you're working in a child abuse case, you're a lot more likely to get called into court, at least. Sure. Um, but really, especially, anybody... Especially as an investigator. Right, right. Yeah. And as, as I recall, one of them was an investigator, and the other one was part of the family reconciliation group. Right, right. So we will come back to them. Um, but that, that was interesting. I thought that that was really an unprecedented move, and that's what their lawyers were saying is to have four social workers indicted on something that so many other people were involved in. And, and what that one social worker, the uh, supervisor had said was, why are we the only ones on trial when all these other people were involved? Sure. Sure. So put a pin in that. Cause we'll come back to that. Okay. <laughs> uh, so there's discussion of the government programs being contracted out for profit companies for profit companies. And the guy that they were talking to referenced the military industrial complex and that some of the contracts that are out for children's services are also military contractors, which I was kind of thrown off by. Did you get that part of it? I don't recall that part. So they were talking about like Northrop Grumman and it was kind of like one of the places where that guard worked that called in. Okay. So it was... Not directly the child investigation units, but the supportive services in the community were being uh, contracted out from the state, I guess. Okay. And that really shocked me, I guess. I, I don't understand why that would be contracted out. How could that possibly save the state money for a for profit company? Sure, sure. And then, you know, how were they trained? What's the oversight? Right, right. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The one guard that they talk about, another community member that ended up calling in a report, that was a whole complication in that particular process is this family had gone there to get some kind of services, probably something like a food stamp or housing allowance or something. And he had seen Gabriel's wounds and had asked the person that they were talking to to report it and apparently her supervisor told her not to report it 
even though... Well, and I think that brings into question, again, who's a mandated reporter, right? I mean, when you pass the buck on certain issues like that, that's how things fall through the cracks, right? And so if you are the one observing or hearing that information, you need to report it. Yeah. Well, and it even said in their contract that they are the people, the worker, the female worker that they did actually speak to and not just pass by the guard... Um, she is a mandated reporter, but because it was 15 minutes to five on a Friday or whatever that her supervisor had said, don't get involved, don't call this in. And the guard ended up breaking HIPAA laws, could have got got fired Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for reporting child abuse, which is just absurd. (laughs) Right. Um, but then when they went back to do the investigation, you know, it was all about that. That was a contract company. And even though it's in their contract, it was more important somehow. And I can't imagine, this is what I'm trying to wrap my head around. I can't imagine a human being blatantly disregarding child abuse for the sake of overtime. So how, you know, maybe the supervisor didn't think it was that bad. Like, how can I rationally understand how anybody would say that? I don't know. I mean, it comes down to do no harm. And if you're not reporting, then you might be contributing to more harm. So yeah, um, whether it's off the clock or on the clock, you know, you have to think about um, the ethics of your, your work. Yeah, yeah. I felt bad for the guard, too. And he, he did, you know, go out of his way to break the rules and, and so that he could report, but didn't seem to do any good either on that. Um, there was discussion about the DA, uh, DCSF, DCFS, the caseloads for the social workers, and about the efficiency of the agency. There was a lot of talk about how uh, shut up they all are. Like, you can't talk to each other, you can't talk to anybody else, you can't get any information, they're not talking to other agencies. <clears throat> and then... Uh, there came a discovery of the internal affairs three-year investigation that this is another one that, I mean, this whole case, as you're watching the case, every episode, you're like, how can this get worse? And then it gets worse. Yep. There was lots of missed opportunities for sure. Gosh. Mm -hmm. So when the prosecutor found out from the defense attorney that there was an investigation through the police department, and that he was getting shut out from that information and actually had to get a court order and they still wouldn't give him the information? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just yeah. can't. Like, yeah. it's child I mean, abuse. I think it's, right? It's this balance with um, social services about maintaining confidentiality um, and you know, the rules around HIPAA, but also kind of what's a need-to-know basis for law enforcement and for pursuing investigations. And so it's kind of a a slippery slope sometimes as far as how much to reveal. Well, the police one, and it may, that may not have been the case with them, but it felt like the police one was more like, we don't want to tell you because we were negligent and we want to keep it internal. We don't want it to be out in the public. Sure, sure. But Which, it's child you know, I mean, abuse. You see that later on in the film, too, with one of the um, social workers who 
um, kind of redacted some of her documentation. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. What's that about? Expand on that thought. Um, so she basically went back into her documentation and altered the dates of her documentation to indicate that it was the month prior to his death. Um, so that if anyone were to review her documentation, I'm assuming, um, she would not be, um, penalized and or looked at real closely because, um, she wasn't involved in the, the week leading up to his death. So, mm. um, yeah, and that's, a, that's a criminal investigation, you know, um, that's a significant and severe violation. Yeah. I mean, you can't do that under normal circumstances, let alone a criminal investigation. But I think, you know, I mean, with regards to a lot of the topics that came out of this film were what people will do in a state of fear, you know, fear of their job, fear of their life, um, you know, as a means to kind of protect themselves um, instead of kind of thinking about protecting the child, which is really what their job is. Yeah, fear makes you do crazy things, right? Doesn't make you make rational choices. Right, right. Yeah, they were uh, discussing investigators uh, out there that never laid eyes on Gabriel. That was another point they made, that there were these police that were called to the place or, or social workers. And it sounds like as we find out later on, he was hidden away from the social right. workers and probably police. But the fact that they never pursued that and kind of forced the issue yeah. to make sure they put eyes on him. But then yeah. they wrote up their reports like everything was fine. <clears throat> sure. Yeah, I mean, you get the sense that they really just kind of took the um, investigation from the parents' report and the siblings' report, and the siblings were really encouraged to um, falsify information provided to the investigators. So, Well, and of, of anyone that's not, not telling the truth... Report. Yeah, I think they're probably the most under understandable because they're seeing the abuse. Of course. Ugh. So during the trial of the social workers, the discussion of what each one did of did during the investigation and how things fell through the craps, um, they were talking about not keeping a body chart. And I never worked in children's, but this makes sense, I guess, that there's a chart that you indicate where all wounds are. Sure. Um, new employee. There was a new employee. The, the first social worker that was in contact probably shouldn't have been in that role or at least had more supervision mm -hmm. because they didn't know what was going yeah. on, you know? Yeah. Um, and they talked about seeking medical attention, like not enforcing seeking medical attention when something was reported. And then the super supervisory oversight. That was a big part of the social workers deal on top of falsifying records. Well, and, you know, one of the things that really um, brought to light a conversation for me was, you know, a lot of new social workers, a lot of new graduates are hired into CPS work, um, having very little to no experience. And, um, that is a really complex place to work. It's you're seeing a lot of significant significant 
trauma and abuse, and especially as an investigator when your job is to make the determination of whether a child is safe or not and to remove that child or leave them in the home. And um, I just feel like as hiring new social workers who um, don't necessarily have the experience, but also um, in a way we're kind of setting them up for failure, you mm-hmm. know, in the sense that like here you are with all this great energy and empathy and excitement for the field and we're going to expose you to as much vicarious trauma as possible mm-hmm. and burn you out before you have a chance to succeed. And I just think that's, that's unethical. Yeah, absolutely. I <clears throat> experienced that vicariously through my cohort members that were in CPS and kind of hearing their secondhand stories of what they were going through. And I, there's no way, there's no way I would voluntarily go to that. And that's aside from being understaffed and, you know, constantly being underpaid them and community mental health workers underpaid for the amount of training they're getting and the amount that they're asked to do. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. it's just exhausting to even think about. And then on top of that, being out there basically by yourself making decisions because there's no sure. way that supervisor can possibly supervise every person with that many yeah. children. And in the midst of a crisis, I mean, you have to be able to make those decisions pretty independently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's unfortunate because I know a lot of CPS workers who, you know, <clears throat> we talk about self-care and having boundaries with personal and professional life. And it's, it's next to impossible to do that as an investigator. Yeah. Because you can't go home. Uh-oh, we're having technical difficulties. Stop, or... <laughs> Hold on, you froze up there for a second. Oh, I was just saying, um, you know, basically that uh, we talk about self-care and boundaries with personal and, and professional life, and I think with CPS work and investigators in particular, it's next to impossible to do that. You know, you can't go home and sleep a good night's sleep knowing that you may have not made the right decision for this child and put them in harm's way. So it's, it's a really difficult position to be in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> let me just make sure I have more of my notes about the, yeah, I don't think I really expounded much on the social worker part. Um, we can come back to that at the end though. So, uh, the particular social worker that I found the most interesting when they were talking about that was that, Uh, the older, more experienced social worker, the family reconciliation one, who they showed to have very different stories from the beginning when she was talking to the police to, you know, six years later when she was talking to the DA. And I think that goes to your point about what people will do when they're in fear. Mm -hmm. It, It was pretty crazy to hear how open and honest she was in the beginning and how not forthcoming she was or completely changing the story when she could possibly be prosecuted for something. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, understandable. That's scary. <laughs> it's terrifying scary. to think you could. And I, I don't know that they ever really said what, what did they say what they were being charged with? I know they said they were indicted. Um, I think her in particular, it was falsification of, of records. Mm. 
and also um I, I think, think maybe child neglect or something child neglect yeah Okay. Yep. Um, yeah, and then I just made some notes to myself, really, in which they made points of, uh, you know, are they scapegoats? Mm-hmm. Because there were, I mean, that that's a great point. They, what about the police? They weren't they weren't losing their jobs or being indicted on anything, and there were plenty more of them involved. Sure. Sure. So, yeah, again, it speaks to, you know, lots of people put eyes on this kid, lots of people heard reports, and lots of people had the potential to follow through and didn't, you know. I know a lot of times the law enforcement does accompany the investigators um, to the home um, in case they do have to remove the child, um, just because sometimes that can be a volatile situation. And so they often take the direction of the investigator unless it's an obvious abuse or neglect situation. So, um, yeah. Mm. Investigators have a lot more authority than, than I think sometimes they think they have. Yeah. And, and I mean, they made the point about family reconciliation and I get it that, in the majority of cases, if they can, it's better to support the family and keep them together. And in this case, it just was one failure after another. It was one missed opportunity after another. Yeah. Which, you know, the film doesn't go a whole lot into this, but, you know, this was a child that did not live with mom um, until the last eight months of his life. So that to me speaks to the fact that CPS was probably involved early on and he was placed with outside family members. And for whatever reason, they decided family reunification was important after eight years and placed kiddo back with um, mom. And it only took eight months for him to face some really detrimental, um, traumatizing circumstances so yeah um, and and how tragic but with what um with what other supports in place you know if he just placed back in the home and no other follow-up or eyes were put on him um so you have to kind of think about the bigger picture too like what led to (laughs) him not living with mom for the first eight years like that's that's a pretty significant decision well they did talk about her not wanting him like as if she didn't want the pregnancy and i remember the grandparents somehow i don't remember if it was their decision but the reason that they ended up with him was because the uncle that had him was gay and that was not acceptable in their family and but i don't remember i feel like they didn't really go into why she got him back from the grandparents you're right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um because they had two other kids Mm -hmm. and he was the one that got the brunt of everything Mm -hmm. even though they had two other kids in the household Mm -hmm. um which is the next part of my notes and the next part of the series is that the two siblings testified about all the different abuse and that he was hid from social workers and the absolutely awful things that they witnessed talk about vicarious trauma and fear. They might not have received the majority of that abuse, but seeing it and being threatened about not talking about it. Absolutely. 
Well, and I think, you know, I mean, there was an, a real fear there that if they did say something, they could be in the same position, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, it's, yeah. I was really glad that that one um, interviewer had made the point to the brother that it was not his fault. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't know how much that did. That kid's probably going to need long-term therapy to get over that. Yeah. But, um. I'm glad he took yeah, the time I mean, to really put that, that point home. Sure. You know, and I think kids can experience survivor's guilt too, you know, and it's, there's two kids that were essentially unharmed physically, but the emotional turmoil that they will have for probably the majority of their life um, is compounded, you know, um, why, why him and not us? Mm-hmm. You know, that question that comes back to survivor's guilt. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the last episode was titled Gabriel's Voice. There was discussion of an investigation commission, and they were really focused on the fact that different departments don't work together. There's no communication. It's not a holistic experience. And I don't know. Why do you think that is? I mean, I, I don't think child neglect or abuse investigation is unique in this i think we have that same problem with all kinds of (laughs) criminal investigations and Mm -hmm. you know national security and all all different kinds of things but for sure i think there's just this kind of protectiveness of their own agency or what what do you think yeah i think there's a protectiveness of the own agency i think um social services uh criminal justice work people are overworked and have a lot on their plate that taking the next step to involve another provider is something that they often don't have time to do. Um, Or maybe they've done it before and it didn't go well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it reinforces like the why bother standpoint. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And it's tragic because of all the things, this is what, you know, this is exactly the kind of thing that, needs the most holistic interventions and and it's probably the least of, likely or lack of education too i think with regards to who to follow up with like who do mm-hmm. i need to be talking to um yeah you know who provides what services and um who's my go-to person mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. i think there's just a real lack of education about that yeah, I don't know that there's necessarily a, a central bureau that gives out that information. I think it feels like everybody coming into that job has to just figure it out on your own. Yeah, yeah, yep. So the uh, end of the boyfriend's trial, there was an interesting conversation about the 11 to 1, the jury. That, you know, 11 people were staunchly for first-degree murder, and one guy, which they did not go into or discuss with him why he changed his mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, after however long, it was a couple of days, I feel like, but the one guy, he, his first points, I guess, made sense, that he was more believing, like, it wasn't the ongoing torture, but... His main point seemed to be that he blamed the mother more than the boyfriend, even though the boyfriend physically did the act, especially the last mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if that was cultural influence. 
It could have been. And they talked a lot about his work as an engineer and how he is very detail-oriented and didn't feel like he had enough evidence to convict him of first-degree murder and the need for the death penalty. Um, so I think he was trying to take a very logistical, rational approach, and maybe the other jurors were responding from an emotional place of wanting to protect this child. Well, I mean, I think it's definitely emotional, but with all, I mean, we didn't even hear half of the evidence and right. it definitely seemed overwhelming, <laughs> the physical yeah, evidence. For sure. for sure. It was for not sure. a circumstantial case. It was. No, but this was, this was also a very rare case where, um, one, the social workers were put on trial and two, where the parents were put on trial for facing, um, the death, the death penalty, penalty. yeah. Yeah. And, and yet somehow, I mean, they talked a little bit about it, but again, they really didn't go into how they got him to change his mind because they did convict him unanimously they did. of first-degree murder. I mean, that, that also speaks to our criminal justice system that you have to, you know, um, have general consensus. And so maybe just after a few days of deliberation, he just kind of went in the direction of the majority. Yeah, I I really wish we could have heard. It sounded like it went on for about six to eight months. Yeah, I wish we could have heard more from him about how he changed his mind because I could see them getting him to agree to first degree murder if they took death penalty off the table, but they didn't. They convicted sure. him of the you know they they sentenced him to death, which means he that had to be unanimous too. Yep. So. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated with how they got him to change his mind. If it was just straight up peer pressure, like, we're not going to let this go to a mistrial. We'll sit here till you change your mind. Or did they really have him accept a logical answer in his own mind? You know what I mean? Hard to say. <sighs> and they said even the penalty phase was even harder or even longer deliberation. Which it should be, you know? Taking... I have mixed feelings myself about the death penalty and sure. um, so, t you know, deciding someone's life or death should be, uh, you know, a, a not an easy decision. Sure. Sure. Although I'm guessing he's probably, cause I think California put a moratorium on the death penalty. So I assume he's just still sitting in prison. They didn't talk about that, but <clears throat> on top of how long appeals taken, whatever else. And it was only a couple right. of years ago. Right. And they did have character witnesses, which I also found really interesting when they were talking about him, the boyfriend, having been a caregiver in a retirement home mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. gentle he had been and how what a great caregiver and wonderful person he had been. And that that brings up a whole nother question of how does someone become, you know, was she really was he really under the influence of this girlfriend and can we really be brought to do something that's against our moral values mm -hmm. just because of someone else's influence? It's a good question. I mean, I think you're you know, the therapist. It's all, matter, <laughs> it's all a matter of perception and how you use <clears throat> someone. And I think people can change, which thankfully they can change, but sometimes they can change for the worse. And so, you know, maybe we don't really know his background, but, you know, maybe he was exposed to different things or. Part of it was drug-induced or part of it was manipulation on, you know, part of the girlfriend. But, um, 
you know, I think people are capable of wrongdoing. Um, but fortunately, most of the time, people's morals and values step in to say, like, okay, this is obviously right, and this is obviously wrong. Um, yeah. But that's the difference between, um, you know, somebody who's facing a conviction like that and someone who doesn't, you know. Yeah, I really could tell the supervisor he had had was really torn up about what she is being told he did and the person that sure. she knows. Sure. Well, and I, I give her credit for just acknowledging her experience with him because that doesn't mean he can't do these negative things, these awful, tragic things. But her experience was different, and I think that's okay Yeah. to, to not be swayed in that way. <laughs> You know, that just because he's on trial for for murder doesn't mean that the person that you knew um, wasn't based on your report. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so then they briefly get into Pearl's trial, and that was mostly because she actually didn't go to trial. She ended up, after he was convicted and sentenced to death, she took a plea deal. Um, they did talk a little bit about her... Uh, competency hearing and her intelligence that she was seemingly on the lower end of the IQ scale. Although she was a feisty little one. She was. Oof. And they did talk about her kind of abuse in childhood and she did not have a sunshine and roses childhood either. No, but I mean, that's what's interesting to me about the reunification. Like, again, there's so many unanswered questions we don't know from the documentary, but like that this reunification happened um, seemingly pretty easily. Um, and yet her family spoke pretty negatively of her and, and not at all surprised that she was capable of doing something like this. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. That was, Yeah. Uh, then, so we move past specifically Gabriel, the very end of the documentary talks about that only two weeks after their trials, another child at 10 years old died, um, Anthony Avalos, and had a very similar history of abuse and very similar abuse, and that possibly homophobia could have been part of his cause of death, um, I don't know that that's necessarily as important as the similarity of, you know, different agencies being involved, ongoing abuse and missed opportunities again. Um, And so it goes into the whole who's accountable, you know, who they did this commission. They made this big deal about let's not have this happen again. And and literally as they're talking about it, it's happening again. And what was just sickening is to hear that 150 more children have died. A hundred and fifty. I don't even have words for that. It's tragic. It's tragic. And I think, you know, it comes down again to certainly, I think it's easy to, to blame individuals, but it, to me, it's a huge system problem. Um, you know, you, they interviewed the supervisors and the supervisors talked about how they had 200 plus cases that they were supervising. And so, you know, they were honest in identifying the fact that no, they don't have time to review documentation of 200 cases. Um, you know, I think they do their best to try to hire people that they feel like are competent. Um, but, 
you know, it's it's a recipe for disaster, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, you know, they did, it did say briefly, six years after Gabriel's death, the social worker case was thrown out, which I think it should have been. I mean, it goes back to your point. Did these individuals make mistakes? Yes, but it was a part of, I mean, I could see that they shouldn't maybe have thrown out a little bit of the messing with documentation part. Uh-oh. I think I lost you again. I don't know how we lost each other, but that's okay. So we were just finishing up with the fact that it's a systemic problem, that it's not, right. it's not one person. Although I can see the particular, the one particular social worker at least getting a pretty severe reprimand about sure. changing her documentation. Yes. Or not changing her documentation. Right. <laughs> Um, but, but I do agree that it shouldn't have been just one or two social workers and their supervisors and not, which I think, you know, the prosecutor spoke to that and I thought that was great that he was like, you know, this is a systemic problem and, you know, I'm part of the system, right? So even though, you know, I'm here to support the child, like I'm part of the problem too. So, um, you know, and that's where real change happens is when people don't look the other way and or point the finger, but say, you know, what could I have done differently? Well, I guess that's the that's the question, right? What can be done differently if they've already, you know, done this commission that they thought was going to be so helpful and then still 150 more kids have have died? If you're not going to change the way that the Children's Investigation Unit operates, then what can possibly change? It's a very good point that I don't have the answer to. <laughs> as far as, as long as I have been a social worker, that is how Department of Child and Family Services has um, operated, you know, with huge caseloads, um, being understaffed, underpaid, um, so I think it's a it's a system that needs to change, but um, it's going to have to change from the top down, you know. And I think then people will have to look at the fact that you know it's they're part of the problem, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, can't we say that the community is part of the problem because absolutely. they're not willing to pay the taxes to fund a program like that or hold their elected leaders accountable? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think, again, it, it, you know, when you point to an agency as being a bigger part of the problem, the agency often wants to um, look the other way and or point the finger in the other direction because people don't want that bad publicity, right? And so instead of saying, like, okay, like, here's what we did wrong, what we could have done differently but we need your help in doing that um it becomes a system-wide problem because nobody wants to take accountability so mm-hmm. so that is the case of gabriel fernandez if you've got a strong stomach and you want to watch that go ahead it's on netflix but um just be aware that i left the details of the abuse out for a reason um so i was just hoping to end our conversation with a little bit about just being a social worker and having 
you know, what is it like to be subpoenaed? What is it like in general for someone to call into question what your notes were several sure. years before? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, at the end of each day, you know, certainly there are days that are harder than others, but I really try from my code of ethics standpoint to really um, do no harm, to really try to treat cases holistically, to um, document. Um, you know, I was um, started my, my career in the field of mental health, and I was taught that if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. Um, so I probably tend to over-document in that case, but, um, you know, I think you could very easily be called into question with regards to being a, um, you know, put on trial and or um, an expert witness, and so you want to be able to refer to your documentation to speak to those cases. And um, so it's, again, it's kind of a slippery slope of, you know, your role as maintaining confidentiality um, for your clients that you're serving, but also being able to speak to the case um, um, with regards to what happened. You know, so if you are called into question years later, does your documentation um, speak to that? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I know you said you were trained to be thorough. And like you said, if you don't document it, it didn't happen, which is true. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that uh, getting called a, a, for a subpoena made you chart any differently? No, honestly, um, I was really grateful for um, for what I had done and for how I documented um, because I really could speak to my documentation. And so, you know, I think obviously when you're subpoenaed, especially years after a case, um, you have to be really careful um, about how you report things because it's really likely not going to be fresh on your mind so you're going to be reporting directly from your documentation mm -hmm. so the stronger that documentation is um you know the the stronger it supports a case or supports against it so um yeah i think if you feel really confident about how you're documenting what you're documenting obviously there's always um you know that again that slippery slope of you don't want to share too much that's going to be used against your client as well but um you know because if you can't speak subjectively about it then then you can't speak about it so right. it's really kind of deferring to you know based on my documentation or from what i can recall um because you can't really kind of tell a story that you don't remember mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for giving up your lunchtime to record this yeah. with me. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And uh, I'm happy to have you on anytime if there's any particular things you want to talk about. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye. All right. That finishes up my conversation with Caitlin about a very difficult subject of child abuse, child murder, and also the scariness of being responsible for things that might end up in court. So if you have any questions or comments about this uh, episode, please email us at someDayDeadPC at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at SomedayDeadPC, and you can find us on Facebook at Someday We'll All Be Dead Podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe so other people can find this. Feel free to share if it's something that you feel someone else would find relevant. 
and please look out for one another in these crazy times. I hope that you're all healthy and safe because we don't need anything expediting this situation. Someday we'll all be dead.